Well, welcome everyone. For the first time in maybe like three months, my right ear was open, and so it sounded really good in here. I'm sure it sounded good the previous three months. This is the first time I could really uh, hear everybody, and so thank you, Junior, uh, for leading us. We're going to be continuing our study in the book of Mark. We're going to be in Mark for the better part of the next year. Um, we're going to have a few breaks here and there, but we're going to make a concentrated effort to get through all 16 chapters of Mark's gospel. And when we started, we talked about how kind of the banner theme that hangs over Mark's gospel is the theme of discipleship. What does it look like for someone to live in the world as a disciple of Jesus? And so a lot of Mark's gospel has very little of Jesus' actual teaching. There are moments where you'll have maybe a few blocks of teaching. There may be a few moments where Jesus speaks in just very short uh, phrases of teaching. But a lot of what you see is Jesus doing, Jesus living out what life in the kingdom of God looks like. And that's one of the reasons we picked it is we know, I know that I'll default to wanting to talk about Jesus' teaching as a means to righteously disobey the command to do. And so discipleship is both growing in what you know and then learning how to apply that and how you live. And so that's what we see in Mark's gospel. Tonight we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open them to there. If you've got your phones, you can click them on to there. Um, if you need a Bible, we have some on the table to my left and your right. You're welcome to use one for tonight. And if you need one to keep with you, by all means, take that and use it as a gift from us. Tonight, and not next week, but the week after, we're going to look at five episodes from the life of Jesus where we see Jesus' authority and holiness be questioned by those who are beginning to watch him in his public ministry. William Ankin Jr., who was a famous uh, leadership theorist back in the day, in a 1970 Colorado Institute of Technology journal, gave an analysis of authority that suggests it's comprised of four elements— The first is the authority of competence. You know what you're talking about in order for others to follow your orders, requests, or suggestions. The second component is the authority of position. You can and are expected to tell others what to do, and you have the ability to enforce consequences for failure to comply. The third component is the authority of personality. You are someone who others feel they can approach. Talking, listening, and working together are reciprocated so that your plans can be accomplished. And fourth and finally is the authority of character. You are viewed by others as possessing integrity, reliability, honesty, loyalty, sincerity, personal morals, and ethics. You will get far better results as a leader from a person who has respect of your character. I think we would hear those read or read those ourselves and go, yeah, that's what we're looking for in a good leader. And I think you see all of those present in the life of Jesus. But what Ankin doesn't have listed as a component of leadership or a component of what he would say is authority, and what Jesus is going to display throughout Mark's gospel and throughout all that we read of Jesus' life, a fifth element of authority is the willingness to use your authority to benefit others. All that Ankin talks about revolves around you being able to do what you want to do and get your agenda and your task accomplished and using other people towards that end. And Jesus says, not only do I possess all of these elements of authority in my own life, but I have a fifth element that makes me unique in all of authority and leadership. And it's that I am able to give my authority and my leadership in a way, in a way that benefits others and helps them grow and flourish and be the men and women of God that I've called them to be. 
Now, we know that we live in an age and in a culture where authority of any kind, but especially religious authority, is viewed with skepticism, cynicism, or outright disdain, and rightfully so to a certain, to a certain extent, given all of the horrendous actions and sins that have been perpetrated by those who hold positions of authority within the church. And as grievous and reprehensible as these sins have been and are, we still must look to Jesus, the one who purchased the church through his life, death, and resurrection, and live under his authority. This week and the week after next, we're going to see these five moments where Jesus has his authority and even his personal holiness questioned. And in each instance, we're going to see that Jesus, as the one who was holy in every way, is worthy of us living our lives in glad-hearted submission to his authority. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful today that you have used your authority to come and rescue us. You would have been right in the eternal wisdom of the Godhead. You would have been right to use your authority to be done with us. But you chose to redeem us. And so it is an act of grace and of your love and of your mercy that we're here. We benefit greatly. We benefit entirely, Jesus, from your willingness to lay aside some of your authority and submit to the Father so that you could redeem us as your sons and as your daughters. And so, Father, we want to be those who live out lives of discipleship that make and adorn the gospel and make it look beautiful to those who watch our lives as they happen. Father, we can only do that through the power of the Spirit at work in us and through the truths of your word and through being surrounded by good Christian community. And so we pray that those things will be present here in our midst and in the life of our church. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be right back. That's a little chillier than I anticipated. Okay, now maybe it won't be quite so cold. All right, sorry about that. So Mark 2, 1 through 22, I'm going to read it a section at a time, and we're just going to walk through it. This is what Mark writes, starting in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. We know that Jesus left Capernaum and made a trip through the region of Galilee, and he's now returned home after some days. And as he gets back into Peter's home and he begins to teach, word spreads that this new teacher, this miracle worker, has Return. And so instantly the crowds begin to pile into Peter's home to hear Jesus teach. 
But what we know and what we're going to see play out throughout Mark's gospel is that a lot of people came to endure the teaching in hopes of being healed. There was no real necessary desire to hear Jesus' teaching. If you heard it, great. But what most people showed up for was simply to have Jesus heal them or their friends or their loved ones. The house fills to overflowing, and so the crowd is more than likely out around the courtyard, leaning in through open windows to hear Jesus teach and hopefully get to the point that he will begin to heal folks. And at some point, four friends arrive with tired arms and aching backs from carrying their friend who's a paralytic. They have a hope that Jesus will heal their friend. We don't know how far they walked. We don't know the distance that they've covered. We only know that these four men and the paralytic were determined to get the paralytic in front of Jesus because they had faith that Jesus would be able to heal their friend. And so when they get there, they see the crowds, and they're not deterred by the crowds, but they begin to think, well, how do we get our friend in front of Jesus? A little bit of first century architecture for you. Most homes were built with a flat roof, and on the outside of the home somewhere, there was a staircase that would lead up to the roof where you could go to either lay out your crops to dry or you could go up for alone time if you had a house full of kids and you just wanted to escape up and rest on the rooftop. And what we know from Luke's gospel account of this same interaction is that the home of Peter had clay tiles on the roof. And so they drag their friend, they've carried him this far, they're already worn out, and then they begin to drag their friend up these steps they get him on the roof and they begin piece by piece to remove the tiles so that they can lower their friend in front of Jesus in hopes that he would just perhaps reach out his hand and heal him. Jesus, who I would imagine and I think we could all imagine, is well aware of what's going on directly above him. Like you don't, you don't just hear roofs start coming apart and go, ah, it's probably nothing, probably just the wind. Jesus, you know, clay starts to fall down. It's like, okay, something's happening. You got to imagine Jesus at some point probably even glanced up like, man, whoever this is, like they are determined to hear or get to me. And eventually the friend comes down on his mat. We don't know if they had ropes or what. Maybe they just dropped him. Who knows? Like that's a, at that point, what does he have to lose? He's a paralytic. Just in he goes. Anyway, he ends up. I told y'all we probably shouldn't have recorded this one. He ends up in front of Jesus. And watch Jesus' first response. He looks at the friends, sees their faith and belief in Jesus' ability to heal the paralytic. And what does he do? He doesn't say that their faith is what is going to make him well. But he says, because of their faith, your sins are forgiven. We think, well, whoa, 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 what does that mean that their faith is how his sins get forgiven? Like, that doesn't seem right. Like, we don't, we don't adhere to a belief that my faith stands in the place of my kids so that if my kids just believe in the faith that I have, that they're somehow going to be okay. But here's the reality of when people are sick or they are oppressed or they are struggling. There are times when we need the faith of our friends to intercede on our behalf Asking God to do what we may be in a, unable to ask for for ourselves. Think about James' admonition for the sick to call on the elders to anoint the sick with oil and pray. Nowhere in James' admonition for the sick to pursue the elders praying for them does James say anything about the faith of the sick person. 
all of that prayer of healing has to do with the faith of those praying for the sick person. That's the context we're to understand the friends lowering the paralytic in front of Jesus and Jesus seeing their faith and pronouncing his sins forgiven. They've done something that the paralytic, by all accounts, could not do for himself. They were trusting that Jesus would heal him. Jesus knows the deeper need, which is that first, his sins be forgiven. But can you imagine what the response of the paralytic and his friends were? Like, have you ever just stopped to think that they didn't bring him there for his sins to be forgiven? I'm sure they were probably like, hey, that's great and all, but can we get to that later? Like, we really wanted to see our friends stand up and walk out of here. But that's not what Jesus does, because when Jesus announces the forgiveness of his sins, we see him implementing more and more of Isaiah's new exodus or promised salvation theme as he first works to restore the paralytic to a right relationship with God, thus fulfilling Isaiah 44:22, which pointed to God's end-breaking reign for the new exodus, meaning that Israel's sins would be forgiven. Isaiah writes, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And so Jesus knew that the most important need in the paralytic's life was not to ever recover his ability to walk. The most important need in the paralytic's life was to be restored to a right relationship with God. And so what he does is Jesus moves them from their deepest need to the secondary need. And when meeting the deepest need, often what we find, not only in the life of the paralytic and his friends, but in our own lives is, we find a borderline disappointment when we go to Jesus with needs and concerns and prayers, and Jesus begins to work in the areas that we're not even talking to him about. We go to Jesus, we pray, we ask Jesus to work on our behalf, to heal us, to heal a friend. We're interceding for others. And often what Jesus does is he seems to start on a completely different page, but he's working on and working out the most important things in our life before he necessarily addresses the immediate thing that brought us into his presence. What this also highlights for us is the need for community. The paralytic was dependent on his friends to carry him to Jesus. And if you're going to survive at any point in your life as a believer, but especially in the world that we live in today that is hyper-individualistic, but we all live behind our telephone screens and through our social media procured lives, if you're going to make it through this life as a sustaining follower of Jesus, you're going to need friends around you who can carry your concerns and your burdens to Jesus on your behalf. And it means being known. And it means being known at the deepest points of our own weakness. Which is uncomfortable. And it challenges us. And it forces us to admit that although we would like to consider ourselves divine and able to rule over our own lives, we are reminded over and over again that we are in fact not divine. And we are dependent on a community of believers to rally around us in life's deepest and darkest moments which means that when we finally celebrate walking out, carrying our mat like the paralytic will, the joy is that much deeper and sweeter when we've been surrounded by friends who have walked through the darkest valleys with us. 
Mark, for reasons we don't know, doesn't give us the response of the paralytic or his friends. But he does tell us how the scribes responded. They immediately started to question the authority of Jesus to forgive sins. Their initial thought was right and grounded in Scripture because it, in fact, is God alone who forgives sins, according to a whole host of Old Testament texts, which included Numbers 14, 18, and 19, which says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And you can see this repeated, something similar to this repeated in Exodus 34, 6 through 9. You can see it in Psalm 25, 18, Psalm 32, 5, Psalm 103, 3, Psalm 134, Isaiah 43, 25, and Isaiah 55, 7. Throughout the Old Testament, it is abundantly clear that although the nation of Israel will go through the rites of sacrifice and go through the steps to be forgiven, they never generate forgiveness on their own. Forgiveness is always the prerogative and the responsibility of God. So for Jesus to look at the paralytic and say, son, your sins are forgiven, is to claim that he is divine. That it is an act of his will, the same way that they would have understood forgiveness as an act of Yahweh's will from the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, it's my will that is divine also. And in accordance with my Father's will, I can pronounce forgiveness. Jesus, being God in the flesh, is aware of their thoughts. And rather than deflecting attention or changing the subject or using humor to lighten the mood, he moves headlong into confrontation. Jesus, after subtly letting the scribes know that he is literally in their heads, asks a rhetorical question meant not only to silence his burgeoning critics, but also prepare the captive audience to learn more about who he is. Jesus asked, Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. The immediate and correct answer is that neither are easier for men alone. There is no sense in which... (laughs) That's all good. There is... (laughs) I was not prepared for that. There, There is the immediate sense in which... Either healing someone from paralysis or pronouncing their sins forgiven, neither is easier for man alone, because healing and forgiveness are both bound up in the steadfast love and the abundant grace and mercy of the God who created us. And so Jesus is putting them in a position where they have to understand intellectually, okay, neither of these things are easier for us, because neither of these things can be done unless God alone intervenes. Jesus then continues to teach by turning to the paralytic while still addressing the scribes. And he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, which means that he is locating the authority, forgiveness of sins, normally reserved for God in heaven. He's saying that that same authority has now broken into your world and it's present in me. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
Jesus doubles down on his authority and claim of divinity by using the healing of the paralytic to point to his ability to forgive sins also. He could have allowed just the forgiveness of sins to stand by itself. But when healing the, in healing the paralytic, he is drawing a straight line to say, I am God in the flesh. And calling this man to take and pick up his mat and walk out of here is meant to serve for the audience watching as an affirmation of Jesus' ability to forgive sins. The ESV Study Bible helps provide greater insight here when it says, quote, To say your sins are forgiven is easier because it is something invisible and impossible to disprove. It's harder to say, take up your bed and walk, because if the man does not get up, the one who said the words will be shown to have no authority to heal. On a deeper level, however, it is harder to forgive sins, because only God can forgive sins, at the cost of Christ's death on the cross. The logic here is that since Jesus can do the visible miracle, this is evidence that he also has the power to do the invisible miracle. What that means for us as disciples of Jesus in the year 2019 is this. Every time God acts in our life to heal us, to strengthen us in our walk, to continue to produce Christ's character in us, when God works in our life in significant ways, every moment is meant to allow us to speak with authority about Jesus' ability to be the one to forgive sins. That's why everything that happens in our life that God does should be a natural segue to sharing the gospel. Because everything God does in our life, while it's meant to conform us to the image of Christ and to encourage other believers, it's also meant to be a natural way that we can take what God has done and turn and then look at those who do not know Jesus and say, if he did this in my life, he is the one who is also able and capable to forgive sins. So how do we think about, how, do we, how does that then change how we talk about the work that God is doing in our lives, not only to our family, but to our friends and to our neighbors and to our coworkers? It should make it easier and easier for us to have moments of natural conversation about how we see Jesus as being trustworthy for the forgiveness of our sins because of what he's actively doing in our life right now. Everything is meant to be something that strengthens our grasp and trust that when we take our last breath in this life, Jesus will prove capable of forgiving our sins when we open our eyes in the next life. So Jesus says, I can do both because I'm God in the flesh and this is the authority that I have. And we are called as disciples to submit ourselves under that authority. And then he goes on. Mark writes in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, 
but sinners. Jesus has made his way back out along the shore of the Sea of Galilee where he had initially called James and John and Simon and Andrew to follow him. And the crowds continue to flock to him to to hear him teach. And as he passes by a certain section of the shore, he sees Levi relaxing in his tax collector's booth. And Jesus calls out to him, come, follow me. And immediately Levi leaves behind his job to obey Jesus' command to follow. Jesus calling Levi means that the group dynamics changed significantly with Levi's addition in to the disciples. He is a man who has more than likely taxed these fishermen or their friends as they came from working on the Sea of Galilee. Beyond that, he was despised as a a traitor to his country. His home was considered ritually impure, and he had been banned from temple worship. Undeterred, Jesus and his disciples make their way to Levi's house, where they join he and his friends for dinner. It's one thing to call fishermen who didn't have what it took to cut it to get into a rabbi school or to follow a certain teacher of the law it's one thing to call fishermen who work hard to make a living it's another thing for jesus to then go out and call one who is considered by some an enemy of the state who's not been allowed into the temple to worship since he took up his tax collecting job and whose own home is considered impure It's one thing to call people who are respectable to follow you as a first century teacher. It's another thing, especially if you're beginning to make claims that you are the God of Israel in the flesh. It's another thing then to begin to call those who don't meet the Old Testament's requirements for ritual purity. But Jesus calls and Levi follows. And later that day, Jesus finds himself at Levi's house eating dinner. Jesus is reclined at table, which in the first century signified personal acceptance and good fellowship. He is there to enjoy the company of those who've welcomed welcomed him into their home. The scribes, now joined by the Pharisees, take immediate exception to Jesus' action. They cannot believe that one who had earlier announced the arrival of the kingdom of God would now be seen eating with, and from their view, endorsing the way of life of these notoriously wicked and law-breaking persons. For the scribes and Pharisees, the only options they see from their interpretation of the law of Moses and their additional teachings is a binary option, meaning they've got one of two natural outcomes for how to relate to someone like Levi. One, you you maintain personal purity through separation, or two, you condone sin through friendship. And if we're honest, Most of us take our understanding for how to befriend and relate to those who are outside of the faith off of these two binary choices. We either think we can't get near them because our own personal purity would be impinged on, or we think if I befriend them, everyone that knows me outside of this new friendship is going to think I'm condoning their lifestyle. Both keep us from following the example of Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't allow a fear of his own personal purity being violated or a fear of others thinking that he's endorsing the lives of the sinners he's around stop him from walking directly into Matthew's house, sitting down and reclining at table, meaning that he was perfectly okay with what was happening around him. Jesus 
pushes back against this false dichotomy by demonstrating a third way, a way that reflects the heart of God. And as the EIV, ESV Study Bible says, the third way is a way of personal purity and the fellowship of mercy. That's what we are called to as disciples, is the third way. We maintain our personal purity, but we also have a fellowship of mercy. Which means that we have to be wise, we have to be discerning, we have to be thoughtful. But it also means that we do not, A, use our relationship with Jesus as a means to keep others at arm's reach. But it also means because we follow Jesus, we don't walk in and act like there's nothing wrong with the way the people who don't know Jesus are choosing to live their life. And that's hard to do, especially when so much of our social media driven lives always stake out the issues on the extreme ends. And force us to feel like we're always picking between do I fully reject everything and just walk in and condone them or do I fully reject them and retain my walk with Christ and that makes it harder and harder for us to navigate this third space this third way of being a disciple which is personal purity and the fellowship of mercy but as Jesus lives out his personal purity and fellowship of mercy he will become a magnet for those who realize they cannot muster a personal purity of their own And much like the sick recognize their need for a doctor, the sinners will recognize their need for a savior, while the religious leaders who are well will continue to stiff arm Jesus and become increasingly hostile to his ministry. Can I tell you another reason why I think this is so hard for us, this third way of personal purity and a fellowship of mercy? is because it's just not flashy. It's not something that you can easily tell others about. It's just in moving your life around the rhythm of being around those who need to know the gospel. But what it often means is that it's going to put us in uncomfortable positions. It's going to put us in a position where those who share our same faith would also then question our motives and our understanding of the faith. And it also means that there are going to be times that we may get it wrong. And those who are outside of the faith think that Jesus is okay with how they're living because we're going to not get this right every time. But it is a call to begin to live out this third way. And it's just not flashy enough for how most of us think God would use our life. It will not necessarily build you a platform. It will not necessarily gain you a following but it will be a way that opens more doors than you can imagine for gospel conversations to happen with those who have no idea how badly they need the gospel. But they would be one of the first to tell you that they are, in fact, sick. And on the other hand, when we hang out with our Christian friends, we often act like we're well all the time. We forget what it's like to be sick. We forget what it's like to need a Savior. And so what we do when we always are circling our lives around our Christian friends is we begin to lose sight. Not always, not always, but a lot of the time what happens is we begin to lose sight of our own sickness and our own need for our Savior daily. And we begin to joke and make fun of those who are stuck and struggling in their sin, both inside and outside the church. And we create a reinforcing path of how we talk and how we communicate 
that puts us more in the seat of the scribes and the Pharisees than in the seat of those who are dependent on God for salvation. So we pursue personal purity and the fellowship of mercy. And then the third of the five scenes, but the last one we're going to look at tonight is 2, 18 through 22. This is what Mark writes. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and, the worse, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. After some time has passed, this wasn't in the same moment that Jesus was in the house of Levi, but after some time has passed, Jesus is out living his life, doing his thing with his disciples. And some of John the Baptist's own followers and some of the disciples of the Pharisees, they approach Jesus' disciples. And they say, why do you guys not fast? Like this is something that even John does. Like we know that you may have issues with how the Pharisees do it, but even John's disciples are fasting. And Jesus hears about it. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus gives them a two-part answer that's meant to further push them into beginning to have to make a decision about what they're going to do with Jesus' life and his ministry. Everything in Mark's gospel is Jesus moving everyone forward, pushing them to begin to think more deeply and more critically about what they're going to do with his life and his teaching. Because that is what all of history hinges on, is what people do with the life and the teaching of Jesus. So everything pushes them forward. Now, fasting was to be part of the spiritual life of the people of God. In the Mosaic Law, fasting was only required to be practiced one day a year on the Day of Atonement. You can read about that in Leviticus 16, 29 through 31, or Leviticus 23, 27 through 32, where Moses lays out those expectations for one day a year of fasting on the Day of Atonement. However, according to the NIV Study Bible, you could also practice fasting to seek God's blessing, as in Ezra 8, 21, or in times of great mourning, as in 2 Samuel 1.12 or 2 Samuel 3.35, you could fast as an expression of self-humbling repentance, particularly in the face of God's judgment. You see that in 1 Samuel 7.6, 1 Kings 21.27-29, Nehemiah 1.4, Joel 1.13-15, and Joel 2.12-15. And after the exile, when the nation of Israel comes back to Jerusalem, the number of prescribed fasts actually increased. You can read about that in Zechariah 7.5 and 8.19. Given Israel's current alienation from God, which was most clearly seen by the rule of the Romans over their land, Fasting seemed to be considered the righteous response to God's judgment. So for Jesus and his disciples not to fast naturally raised questions among the people. If you're announcing on one hand that you are here to institute the kingdom of God, and then you don't practice humble, repentant fasting as a means to procure God's favor for us again, then what do we do with you? 
You're announcing one thing, and then you're not doing the one thing we all think is necessary for the kingdom of God to actually arrive in our land. Jesus is always going to create tension in the lives of everyone we see in Mark's gospel and even in our own life. Every time Jesus, through the Spirit in our life, begins to work, it's always going to bring us to a point of tension where we live in the paradoxes of the, of the Christian faith. So Jesus first responds by making a clarifying statement about his role, further forcing those listening to him, following him, to wrestle with the implications of him being the Messiah. Jesus says that if the bridegroom or the husband-to-be is with the wedding guest, there will be no need for fasting because it should be a time of joyously celebrating a new relationship, not mourning an alienated or a lost relationship. So Jesus says, the reason we're not fasting is because I'm the promised bridegroom of the people of God. And so we're no longer mourning the alienation that you think your fasting is going to remedy. We're celebrating a new relationship, a new covenant that is going to be formed out of my life and my death and my resurrection. Jesus declaring himself to be the husband and waiting for Israel is a direct fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah. And the NIV Study Bible helps us understand that prophecy when it says, God in merciful forgiveness would again marry his people as found in Isaiah 54, 5, and 6, which says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. And so while Jesus may not allow the demons to directly identify him, the more you study Jesus' use of prophecy and imagery from the Old Testament, the more you see he wasn't tiptoeing around his rightful identity. But because of the blindness and the hardness of sin, he was able to, in some regard, hide in plain sight. And so he can silence the demons from directly identify, correctly identifying him as the Holy One of Israel. But he is in no way ducking or dodging who he really is. But because of the sinfulness and the hardness of heart of the people of Israel, he can essentially hide in plain sight. It's like that old show, I don't know if any of you watched it, the Jamie Kennedy experiment. Anybody in here watch that? Or uh, the Carbonara effect now is like, I guess, maybe the new Jamie Kennedy experiment. But you have these people who host this show and they get dressed up and they go and they're there in plain sight. And they're they're orchestrating things to happen to either put people in positions where they're, where they're scared or they laugh or they cry, whatever it is. And then later, after a certain point, they go, oh, it's me, I'm Jamie Kennedy, you should just laugh now, don't be so scared. Jesus is essentially doing much the same through the Gospel of Mark. He's talking, he's ministering, he's healing, but nobody really understands who he is. And the only way he will be understood rightly it's through his death on the cross. And so when you see Jesus work through the gospel of Mark, he's always being honest about who he is, but he's also choosing how he reveals himself so that no one would properly understand him until they saw him hanging on the cross. Jesus then follows up this clarifying statement with a parabolic explanation of how to best understand his teaching and ministry. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. 
If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. How many of you have read that once and you immediately understood all that Jesus was talking about? And you're like, man, I got this. Like, on to the next parable, Jesus. Jesus is saying so much. Like, we could literally spend the next month unpacking the implications of what Jesus is saying about who he is and what his ministry is. When he says, you don't put new cloth on a tear in an old pair of jeans. Because if you do, when that new cloth shrinks, it's going to make the tear worse. And you don't put new wine, which still had some combustibility to it and expanding to do. You don't put new wine into old wineskins because as it grows and as it expands, it will break apart the wineskin meant to hold the wine. And then not only is the wineskin ruined, but all that new wine is then lost to the ground. The NIV Study Bible helps us better understand it when it says this. These two parables explain that the new thing Jesus brings cannot be superimposed on the old. Not only will Jesus' teaching become the new norm, but his life and new Passover or new covenant death will become the new way in which God is to be known throughout the world. Jesus is saying, you can't superimpose my teaching on the Mosaic law that's why in the sermon on the mount he would say i didn't come to abolish the law but i came to fulfill the law this isn't jesus saying the old testament got it all wrong i'm here to now get it right jesus is saying i'm going to fulfill the law so there's nothing left for the law to do and then instead of trying to superimpose my teaching on the law which would make a mess of everything you're going to have to understand that once the law is fulfilled there's a new way of living that now centers around me and my teaching And if you keep trying to cross this up, and if you keep trying to make the new fit into the old, you're only ever going to create further conflict, further tearing, further damage to people who are already alienated from God because of their sins. This means we have to be those who are careful in understanding how the scriptures relate to one another. So that we do not unintentionally begin to impose the old on the new, and lead people further away from the heart of God as revealed in Jesus' life and teaching and death and resurrection. It means that we want to be very careful that we see how the Bible fits together, allowing the new, the culmination of all that the old pointed to was in the new and in the life of Jesus. And so we want to allow the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament. We don't want to try to allow the Old Testament to interpret the New Testament. You will make a mess of it, and Jesus warns us of that right here. So he says, be very careful how you begin to appropriate my life and my teaching. So who is it that's going to provide these new wineskins that can hold the new wine of the kingdom? God himself will provide the new wineskins as prophesied in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, which says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will quench you. Here it is. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is a fact of life for a follower of Jesus. What God commands, God supplies. 
If you can't put new wine in old wineskins, then somebody needs to give us all new wineskins. And so God had prophesied in Ezekiel, I'll provide them. Because I'm going to take your old wineskin, your old hardened heart, I'm going to take it out and I'm going to put a new heart within you that can hold the teachings of my son, Jesus. It's going to make it possible for you to obey is that I'm not only going to give you a new heart, but I'm going to put my spirit in you. So that not only can you hold the new teaching, but you will be empowered to live out the new teaching. And we go, man, thank God we grew up just in New Testament times, right? Like we don't have to worry with all this. But here's the challenge for us as disciples. Coming to faith in Jesus is not an add-on meant to enhance your life. Coming to Jesus to follow him as a disciple is not you imposing your life on his teachings in a way that makes Jesus subservient to you and your dreams and your goals and your aspirations. That is putting new cloth on old cloth. That is pouring new wine into old wineskins. And you will find yourself perpetually disappointed with how God is operating in your life. We do not superimpose the gospel over our life and say, Jesus, just make my life a little bit better. We come to Jesus in humble submission and in humble recognition that we are sick and in need of a doctor. And he performs open heart surgery and he takes out our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh and he gives us a spirit within to obey. And then he says, now your whole life's orientation changes. You no longer live for yourself. But in the South, in the Bible Belt South, this is how almost everyone pursues a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is merely an add-on to an already okay life, meant to make an already okay life better. And we consistently find ourselves at odds with how God is working in our life. Because we're always trying to cram new wine into old wineskins. And so this would appear rather daunting if we didn't have the truth of the cross. So we think, well, man, I, you know, I don't, do I really want to submit? Like, what does that look like? The reality of Jesus' life and authority is that he laid it down so that we could have life in him. And so if you've trusted in Jesus and you've submitted to his authority, then no longer is his authority held over you as a means of punishment. His authority is held over you as a means of grace to see you grow and develop as a disciple and follower of Jesus. But it means a true, honest surrender of all of our old life. Jesus has already and will continue to leverage his authority, his holiness, and his power for our good and his glory. Therefore, today and every day for all of eternity, he will be worthy of our full devotion. You begin to see what life in the kingdom looks like. Life in the kingdom looks like leveraging your power for those who can't help themselves, much like Jesus leveraged his power 
to heal the paralytic. You begin to see life in the kingdom looks like personal purity and a fellowship of mercy with those who are near to you and far from God. And you begin to see that life as a disciple in the kingdom of God is not you asking Jesus to make your life just a little bit better, but you submitting your life to seeing the kingdom of God advance in the world. And that means he doesn't have to bend to your every wish and desire for what you think your life should look like, but he will then lead you in a way where your life reflects his life more clearly on a day-to-day basis. For that is what a disciple is called to do, is to know and embody the teachings of their master. Let's pray.